You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man. And uh, it's that time of year again, uh, the festive season, to be sure, whereby um, the next uh, week or so, actually a couple of weeks, we'll be looking and doing a review of the year. So uh, this Monday, uh, I've got March. So if you can cast your minds back to um, what happened this year in March, um, there's, it was quite quite uh, an eventful month, let's say. So uh, as to what actually happened, uh, there was uh, on the 3rd of March, International Book Day. We discussed uh, here on Drive Time Show uh, the major books that shaped society and the importance of reading daily. Uh, the month of March was also significant for both, uh, not just book lovers, but especially for women, with uh, the International Women's Day on the 8th of March, a day uh, in which we spent discussing the significant female role models in religion and uh, you know, within Islam uh, as well, and also discussed the hijab, and the issue of the hijab in depth. Uh, the month also dedicated a whole week on how to stop World War III and also highlighted the pressures of the pandemic faced by uh, NHS staff, the impact of COVID on the brain and the crisis caused by the cost of living, of which uh, I'm sure a lot of us, uh, a lot of households uh, across the country are facing currently. Uh, we actually ended the month of March with a show dedicated uh, to the onset of the holy month of Ramadan. So, you know, how did we actually keep all our listeners, our Drive Time Show listeners, informed uh, as to these topics? Uh, I'm going to just briefly intro uh, a few of the recordings that we have for you, or the audios that we have for you. But I suppose it'd be remiss uh, of me not to mention... Uh, what happened over the weekend, obviously the culmination of the World Cup in Qatar. Uh, and, you know, it's um, brought about a lot of varied reactions. Uh, I'm sure, you know, right at the beginning of the tournament, there was the uh, idea of, you know, the human rights record of Qatar. Um, and then the idea of, you know, should some people actually or should they partake uh, in the in the World Cup, but I think uh, by the whole, it's actually been a very very uh, well attended and well uh, you know viewed World Cup, uh, culminating in I've got to say uh, one of the best finals I've ever seen, um, gripping to the end, and I suppose you know if you are a neutral, I suppose you'd you know, want Messi and Argentina to have ultimately won at the end, uh, of which they did do. And, um, yeah, so uh, all the best uh, to Messi, because, as I believe, and a lot of people have said, it's going to be his final, or it was his final appearance in the World Cup. So hats off to Argentina in lifting the World Cup. uh, And, uh, you know, hopefully... Maybe he, he might actually come back because you know, some of the um, glimpses of the brilliance uh, of the footballer that is 
uh, Messi. So some people have named him Goat. Um, whether you feel that he is, you know, the greatest all uh, of uh, all time player of football, uh, that's your own opinion. But uh, he did show some glimpses, absolute brilliance during that tournament and even in the final. But coming back to uh, what happened in March. So yeah, I've already said that uh, it was the International Women's Day and to uh, highlight uh, the role of women uh, throughout the ages. So women have been you know, given an equal status in Islam. And when we look at the history of Islam, we find countless examples of brave and courageous women who remained steadfast and worked tirelessly for the propagation of their faith. In other religions, we observe that derogatory claims have been made about women, such as it is claimed that women do not even have a soul. How can that be? I mean, whilst others have taught that women are born sinners or that women are the root of all evil. Yet in Islam, uh, we abide by a different uh, teaching, uh, which and you know the characteristics of women are crystal clear. You know, they are not inferior to men in any way, shape or form. Thus, where the Holy Quran mentions believing men, it also mirrors that by mentioning believing women. So, you know, that is true equality. Now, the beauty of Islam is that it creates peace and harmony between religions by recognizing all uh, the past prophets who have bought, brought the same message of unity, the unity of God. Uh, other than uh, otherwise known as Tawheed. Now, in chapter 2, verse 137, 137 of the Holy Quran, uh, addressing uh, the believers, Allah Ta'ala, God Almighty, instructs them to say that we make no difference between any of them, the prophets. Now, this suggests that we can't be Muslims unless we believe in all the prophets of God. So, similarly, Allah has liked likened the conduct of these women uh, who in spirit were Muslims totally submitted towards God but were not from the Ummah, the community of the Holy Prophet uh, may uh, blessings be upon him with the exception of uh, Hazrat Aisha, Hazrat Fatima and Hazrat Um Umara who were from the community, from the Ummah so many uh, so, so much so that their mention was or has been preserved in the Holy Quran or the Hadith, uh, the sayings of, as an example for the world by name or otherwise. So um, one of these uh, women is Hazrat Ayesa. Uh, may Allah be pleased with her. Now, Hazrat Ayesa was the wife of the greatest tyrant of all times, Pharaoh. Now, not only did he deny the prophethood of Moses himself, uh, whoever dared dispa uh, disobey Pharaoh and believe in Moses was gravely punished. Yet, despite the persecution, Hazrat Aisa believed in Moses' message and held firmly to her faith. That faith was so strong, she was willing to die for it. When Pharaoh... Uh, when Pharaoh found out that she believed, he tortured her severely. Now, in the Holy Quran, uh, it has set two examples of true believers. The first is actually Hazrat Aisa, the wife of Pharaoh, and the second, Hazrat Miriam, 
mother of Jesus, uh, peace and blessings be upon him. And it states, And Allah sets forth for those who believe the example of the wife of Pharaoh, when she said, My Lord, build for me a house with thee in the garden, and deliver me from Pharaoh and his works, and deliver me from the wrongdoing people. And that's chapter 66, verse 12. She personifies steadfastness, a quality which true believers should also have within themselves. She signifies a true follower of a prophet and those who have attained true submission to Allah. She has set an example for both men and women to follow. Though Hazrat Aisa was the wife of the most powerful man uh, in those times, with unparalleled wealth at her uh, disposure, she had no attachment to this life. The only desire she actually had was to have a house in paradise. This very mindset builds within a believer resilience and steadfastness whenever faced with trials and turbulences. Undoubtedly, Hazrat Aisa was a queen. She did not bow down to her wicked husband's tyranny, but instead her mind, her soul, remained independent from her husband. His her husband couldn't enslave or mould her heart to what he believed in. She chose instead to devout or to devote, sorry, I should say, her soul and her life to God. And if you think back to those times, um, you know, she obviously she belonged to the Egyptian way of life. And their uh, idea of afterlife is totally different to the idea that we have of eternity from Islam. So it's a very radical thing to, you know, move away from that and actually believe in the unity of God and that, you know, the day of judgment will come and after judgment, uh, you'll be tried for your sins. You'll be, uh, every individual man and woman will be uh, in the sight of God, uh, Allah Ta'ala. And then, you know, you have the eternity for heaven. So, you know, it's a very radical idea and something so, I suppose, fundamentally polar opposite to what she was used to and what she had been brought up to, uh, to believe in, let's say, and her belief system that, you know, we have to take, uh, you know, take heed or not take heed, but actually, you know, give her that um, deference as a, a of note, a woman of note, so that even in the Holy Quran, it is actually, uh, she is noteworthy. But to speak further about this, uh, and uh, other women of note in Islam and religion, uh, I'm just going to play uh, you guys, you listeners out there, uh, an audio clip from Raim Shraiki, uh, also uh, talking about women in Islam. You know, we're speaking about uh, some uh, uh, different, uh, uh, different uh, noble women who are mm-hmm. definitely role models in, uh, in in history, and not just history, but also in religious history. Speaking mm-hmm. about uh, Hazrat Asiya, um, mm-hmm. what lessons do we learn from the life of Hazrat Asiya as a role model for the believers? I mean, uh, tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, you know, in the Holy Quran, God Almighty has given us two examples for the believers. One of them is the example of uh, Hadrat Asya, who is the wife of Pharaoh, and who sought God's protection from her tyrant husband. This is the example of the believers who fall short in front of emotions and commit mistakes, 
then repent and seek refuge in God. So those believers have nafs al-lawama, which is the reproving self. So they always strive to avoid bad things. The second type of believers are those who have a higher spiritual state, that they do not only avoid evil deeds, but also earn uh, good deeds. Allah told us that their example is like Mary, Jesus' mother. So, so every believer who possesses uh, perfection in piety and purity is like her. So the Holy Quran has shown us through these examples that amongst the believers, there are those who are stronger in faith and those who are a bit weaker due to their struggling circumstances like Hadrat Asya. But still Allah accepts them as believers. They are, as I said, like the wife of Pharaoh, whose husband was a mighty and tyrannical king who controlled a great country and was so arrogant and proud of himself that he challenged the Lord of heavens and earth. So hmm. uh, she was under his uh, arrogant and uh, this arrogant uh, and tyrannical king, a weak and powerless woman. And yet she stayed steadfast in her faith and kept supplicating to him, saying, My Lord, build for me a house with thee in the garden and deliver me from Pharaoh and his work and deliver me from the wrongdoing people. Mm. So we learn from this that we have to remain steadfast in our faith, no matter how persecuted or oppressed we are so that God can save us from this situation mm. and rewards us with his heaven. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, talking about you know one of the qualities or some of the qualities of uh, of believers as well, um, mm-hmm. we see that there are many many examples. Why why is steadfastness uh, steadfastness mm-hmm. a quality of, uh, of of believers, men and women? Uh, here, I would like to quote uh, from the founder of Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, the Promised Messiah, Hadrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him. Mm-hmm. He says, "Hold a true belief in Allah that." in Allah the Almighty, as you will attain everything from that. This requires steadfastness and determination. The exalted rank of the prophets was attained through their steadfastness and patience. Mm. So the Holy Quran taught us the prayer also, our Lord, power force upon us steadfastness and cause us to die resigned unto thee. So believers throughout the history of religion have been subjected to persecution, ridicule, ridicule and mockery from the opponent, opponents. And even, you know, they were subjected to harassment or boycott in order to leave their religion. Hmm. And here those who are weak in faith may respond to them and leave their faith or may respond to them outwardly out of fear while their hearts are full of faith. So the believers need God's help in order to remain steadfast in their faith in all circumstances and conditions absolutely absolutely but how, how can how you know of course you know there are different people facing different uh, different types of problems how right. can a believer remain steadfast and mm-hmm. uh, persevere during a you know during a difficult time you know the holy quran refers to the qualities of the believers mm which uh, they should exhibit when they are faced with any kind of tribulations. Mm. These qualities are patience and the steadfastness. And in fact, such trials are a source of a greater strength in the faith 
of the true believers. The Holy Quran says, O ye who believe, seek help with patience and prayer. Surely Allah is with the steadfast. So here Allah describes two key characteristics of the believers. They exhibit patience and they seek help with the prayer at the time of adversity. Patience, in fact, has several meanings. Firstly, it means that the one should refrain from complaining when faced with any kind of hardship. He should endure the difficulty with fortitude. Lamenting in a way of... uh, uh, in in way of a difficulty can sometimes result in the expression of such emotions which are unbecoming of a believer. Secondly, patience means to remain steadfast and resolute. Thirdly, it means to remain firmly grounded in the commandments of God. Patience also means that one should make every effort to shield oneself from what God has forbidden. So steadfastness entails that one has the quality to face any kind of trials and tribulations with strength, courage, and resilience, and that he prostrates in front of God with absolute conviction and firm faith and should seek help with prayer and supplication. So when a believer hands over his complete trust and faith to God and relies solely on him, then in face of every trial, he shall meet with success, and his relationship with God will keep increasing, and God will come to his servant as a mother tries to help her child in any way that she can. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, there are these type of examples as well. You know, which we which we have just spoken about as well, and it just gives reassurance to all the believers as well, even people exactly. with weak faith, and maybe you know they right. can look at these examples and benefit from that as well. So that was uh, an, a conversation with Aram Shreki regarding uh, women role models within Islam or role models of uh, women in Islam. Now. As I mentioned initially uh, regarding uh, women, noteworthy women, that even uh, such that or their status was such that they have been mentioned in the Holy Quran. Uh, Another one of those women is Hazrat Miriam. Uh, Now, as mentioned earlier, Hazrat Miriam has been set as an example for true believers. It is worth noting that her example is for all Muslims, not specifically Muslim women, as the example of Mary, peace be upon her, is universal. She holds such a high status amongst uh, the Muslims that a whole chapter of the Holy Quran is named after her. The Quran gives us knowledge of Hazrat Miriam's lineage by mentioning her parents Imran and Hannah. Hazrat Miriam was born in Palestine, a country on the edge of the Roman Empire, uh, to a Jewish household. Now, chapter 3, verse 36 to 37 of the Quran mentions that Hannah, mother of Mary, fell pregnant and decided to dedicate the baby in service to God. Now, assuming it will be a son, when she gave birth to a daughter rather than a son, Hannah said to God, My Lord, I am delivered of a female. Now, in reply to this, it is mentioned that Allah knew best which she had brought forth, and the male she was thinking of was not 
or like the female she had brought forth. Now in those times only boys were accepted into Jewish temples in the service of God, but exception was made for Mary, who had her own chamber for worship and the remembrance of God. When Miriam was worshipping in seclusion, an angel appeared to her and said, O Mary, Allah has chosen thee and purified thee and chosen thee above the women of all peoples. Now this is chapter 3, verse 43. He advised her to prostrate before God and only worship him. The angel then said, O Mary, Allah gives glad tidings of a word from God, from him. His name shall be the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, honoured in this world and in the next, and of those who are granted nearness to God. As a young unmarried woman and pregnant, her chastity was questioned by people. However, upon the question of Hazrat Miriam about how she can have a child without the agency of a man, Allah the Almighty indicated to her chastity. Allah states that it is easy for him to make it possible. The story of Hazrat Miriam tells a lot about her status. The fact Allah chose her for this task indicates her courage and ability to fulfill it. Then her level of trust and obedience to God Almighty is evident in that she listened to Allah, raised her son in accordance with God's wishes, despite the fact that the task itself would have been overwhelming. In return, Allah the Almighty gave her the glad tidings that she would be the mother of a prophet and messiah. She was then told that her son would even speak to people in his young age, indicating his level of intelligence and knowledge. Her son was also promised to be among the righteous. So, once again, you know, this uh, Hazrat Miriam, may Allah be pleased with her, you know, had mentioned, in fact, the whole chapter of the Holy Quran has been dedicated to her. So it shows you the status and the you know, equality of women within the religion of Islam. Um, to speak further about this, uh, I'm going to play you another audio clip uh, about uh, the status or role models of uh, female role models within Islam. Uh, and this is with a conversation with Ariba Nur. Why is Hazrat Fatima, may Allah be pleased with her, a role model for, for Muslim believers? Yeah, um, as I was mentioning earlier, that basically in her, I find her very brave and very strong personality, as well as um, an obedient personality, because she was, she faced a lot in her life, in her early age, loss of her mother, and then she also um, seen oppositions of enemies of Islam, um, who used to basically uh, target her father, Huzur Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, in front of her. Um, and the level of cruelty she's seen that her father faced um, gave her, or basically, um, you know, let her understand or let her um, patience that she learned from her very early age and that grew in her as a strong personality. Um, so I think, and then later on, and then sister as well. Um, and then 
her own life, like after even after marriage, she wasn't even uh, she was very poor, but still being you know very being very patient and then um, staying on the right path. She faced everything, did her all of, all of the responsibilities. Um, so these are the reasons, basically, which I think uh, you know makes her a roadmap for us as Muslim believers. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Now we also see from you know different traditions that Hazrat Fatima, may Allah be pleased with her, she had many tasks and responsibilities, and uh, she managed uh, all of these things at a very at a, you know at a very young age. Now the question is that what you know looking at these you know these different examples as well, what can we learn? Or, or what can w- w- women learn from this in terms of balancing life as a wife and also not just that but as a mother and any any career aspirations as well? Um, as, I, as I was mentioning earlier, as basically um, very, you know, bravely um, confronted many uh, painful circumstances in her life and uh, she also, in, in due, uh, you know, being in those circumstances, she managed uh, to be um, a good wife, a responsible wife, and also she's a very obedient daughter, as I said. At various um, occasions, we, um, we do read that Huzul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam forbid her to um, basically such to do such tasks which other people would bring, and she straight away obeyed. Um, her father in you know without even asking a question and um, in terms of uh, being a mother she was very nice mother Um, just uh, the way she was um, um, basically treated by her father lovingly and uh, with all of the rights given so she um, you know she proved uh, how basically I would say she did all that which she faced um, or she basically received um, from her father. And I think um, these qualities, um, basically, we should adopt as well as a, as Lajnai Maila in our lives, hmm. that um, whatever the problem comes up or whatever of uh, problems we do face as a student um, in our universities or if we work so at workplaces. So I think we should not compromise our own farda. We should not compromise our religion for that all. We should um, always uh, stay on the right path. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should be patient. And then, you know, with uh, by praying with Allah Ta'ala, being a strong personality, we can achieve so many things. We can balance so many things, just like Hazrat Fatma, Rizal Ta'ala Anha. In our as a wife, as a mother, or uh, for any career as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Now we spoke a little bit about this before as well, but if you can tell us, um, you know, s- some more information in regards to this as well. What was the status of uh, uh, of girls or of a daughter at the time of ignorance, uh, you know, before Islam, and how does the great relationship of uh, of Hazrat Fatima? And also the you know with the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him signify a, a a sort of a great revolutionary change. So before the advent of the status of daughter was that basically they used to bury the daughter right right the time the born like like right the time she was. So um, if anybody managed to basically 
uh, keep their daughters alive. They used to basically, they, those daughters do not have any rights to live or they have any rights on their properties from their fathers. Mm. Um, they didn't have any right uh, to, you know, uh, even for um, agreement for a marriage or, you know, there was no, um, there was no sort of... Uh, Right. They they don't never used to consider that basically a, a woman or a daughter would have um, a right to choose something for herself. Hmm. Uh, this ill concept used to um, be at that time, which basically was uh, vanished by Huzur Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he, um, the, the relationship he used to have with his daughter um, is very beautiful. Um, that whenever he used to visit um, at her marriage, she used to stand up uh, due to respect. And then whenever she used to visit even before her marriage, um, even when he used to come to her room as well to just see her, talk to her, um, and then uh, she used to stand up. And then whenever she used to come, he used to stand up. Uh, to show that respect. So I think this is a very basic example incident, but it's very beautiful in itself that mm. um, they used to carry a very beautiful bond because she, she spent most of her time with the father, with Rasulullah mm. and her mother. Um, yeah, and then uh, I remember one uh, one more um, incident when at the time Rasulullah was in, was in, um, wasn't okay, wasn't well. And then um, Hazrat uh, Fatma Zilatalanha was with her, standing next to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he uh, whispered something in her ear and she was crying. She started crying and afterwards he said something else and she started um, smiling. Mm-hmm. Then Hazrat Aisha um, inquired what happened and she said, Huzur Sallallahu said that due to this illness I'm going to die. She started crying, and then mm-hmm. afterwards said, "But you will be the first one to come and meet me mm-hmm. after my death." And and then um, that was the time she started smiling. So this is again a very beautiful example of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, I think uh, that's all. Uh, that's an example, or that's a message to all daughters out there who. Uh, you know, who can learn this um, beautiful attribute, I would call it, from Hazrat Fatma Zila Ta'ala and her obedience and affection, which she used to have for her father, and she carried it um, along her whole life. Absolutely, 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 100%. So that was uh, a conversation with Ariba Noor, uh, also about role models or female role models in Islam. So um just to conclude uh this uh, i suppose this uh, like uh, part of march where we are concentrating on international women's day and looking at women who uh are of noteworthy uh, not just in uh, any religion but within islam as well so just briefly also you know to mention hazrat aisha uh now hazrat aisha was the daughter of abu bakr and his wife zainab and she was also the wife of our beloved Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. And because of this relationship, she was also uh, <clears throat> she was also Umat al Mumineen, the mother of all believers. So, also another uh, woman of note within Islam. 
not uh, to mention, and these are within the Ummah, within the, the community of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. Uh, Hazrat Fatima also. Hazrat Fatima, may Allah be pleased with him, uh, with her, was the youngest daughter of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon her. Uh, also, Hazrat Umar Umara. Now, Hazrat Umar Umara was a renowned female companion of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. Uh, she was born in Medina around 40 years before Hijra, before the uh, migration to Medina. So she was a courageous woman and played a big role in the Battle of Uhud. Uh, and this battle is associated with her bravery and, com and companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, used to call her the woman or the woman of Uhud. Uh, so, you know, also uh, of uh, noteworthy mention is Hazrat uh, Hawa. Now Hazrat Hawa, otherwise known as Eve, was the wife of the Prophet Adam. Uh, her character portrayal in the Bible is shocking and completely opposite to that mentioned in the Holy Quran. Uh, but you know, she has this standing that also to be mentioned in the Holy Quran. Now, in conclusion, all the women uh, that have been mentioned. Uh, by myself today and the ones that you know we haven't mentioned made countless sacrifices for the sake of Islam and its success without once thinking of their own interest uh, their contribution to Islamic history uh, was not ordinary and in a time when opposition against the Holy Prophet peace and blessings be upon him was at its extreme these brave women and their families continued to serve and offer sacrifices for their faith and its propagation, something that teaches all men and women alike the lesson of true devotion and loyalty and steadfastness. Explaining the high status of women in Islam, His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Mazra Ahmad, head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, states that the high status of women in Islam is such that it is only through their noble efforts that the coming generation will remain attached to their faith. Only if mothers play their crucial roles can the great values of our religion remain firmly instilled in our future generations. So let's reflect on those words of uh, His Holiness, that uh, it's with these family values that the next generation uh, is instilled. Because that is, you know, when children are brought forth into this world that's their first point of contact is with their parents and primarily with their mother so what else happened in march also book day so you know you might think yeah books are a bit kind of old hat now with the internet and uh, being social media but you know on thursday the third of march it was actually celebrated as world book day where uh, we discuss some of the major books that have shaped society and the importance of reading in our everyday lives. Books play such an important role in our lives, even to those who don't read books themselves. So many movies and TV shows are based on books. I mean, as <coughs> excuse me, as a Muslim, you know, we have the most important book uh, as the centerpiece of our lives, and that is the Holy Quran. So, you know, what more? importance do books have than that i mean books give us a space for creativity and imagination each person can have a different uh, experience reading exactly the same book uh, as well as pleasure books are a great source of knowledge even the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him said 
that is a, obligatory for every Muslim man and woman, a uh, man and woman, I should say, to acquire knowledge. Now, it shouldn't be underrated the actual importance of reading. There are many benefits to reading. Um, one of those being uh, the neurological strengthening that comes from reading frequently. Uh, it's suggested that reading daily, even for 15 to 20 minutes in the morning, can help to vastly improve your ability to concentrate on a task in other aspects of your work or home life. Now, in this day and age where everyone, you know, even you know, the youngest of children, are often glued to their screens, whether it be a, a laptop, TV, or their smartphones. Uh, actually being able to pull yourself away from that and focus on what is actually around you is an amazing skill uh, to help you shape or to help shape you as a person. Uh, the fourth Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community stated, it is important to encourage children to read such stories that will create greatness of character, realism and courage in them. If they read good literature, its good effects will produce great results and may even transform their lives. The promised Messiah, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, has written about the importance of experiencing things for ourselves. He stated that knowledge has three stages. Knowledge through inference knowledge through observation, and knowledge through experience. An illustration of these three stages of knowledge for a man of common understanding is this. When a man observes smoke at a distance, his reasoning through association concludes the existence of fire because the former does not exist with the latter, or, or I should say without the latter. This is knowledge through inference. But if the person is close to the fire and can see the fire with his own eyes as a certainty, then this is knowledge through, obviously, observation. However, if he gets so close to the fire and touches it with his own hands, this is knowledge through experience. So those are the three, uh, uh, the three uh, states of knowledge uh, as uh, guided to us from the uh, promised Messiah. So, you know, let's look at the books that have actually shaped society. Now, religious books, obviously, have played a huge role in the world that we live in today. The idea uh, of a supreme being, a creator, has been around since, you know, the time of memorial, the beginning of time even. Religious books like the Bible, the Torah, the Holy Quran have played uh, a, a massive role in society. And, you know, they still do to today. Allah Almighty has said in the Holy Quran, in chapter 14, verse 2, We have revealed this magnificent book to you, so that you may move people out of darkness and into light. And to speak more about this, this is an interview we had with Cassie Chatterton. Uh, can you briefly tell us about this, uh, this day, World Book Day? What is, um, wh what is the purpose of this? Of course, yes, please. So, World Book Day is a charity that has been around now for 25 years. We're celebrating our 25th birthday this year. And our mission is really simple. We're here to encourage children to read and to be readers and to enjoy reading. Um, so we encourage them to do this in lots of ways, but particularly by making sure that they can have a book of their own. Mm -hmm. Nearly 400,000 children in the UK don't have a book of their own. So we're all about making sure that books are possible and as many children as possible can enjoy and explore them. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, when, it, when it comes to today's ever-increasingly digital world, why is it still so important for children to, to, to pick up a book and, like you mentioned, to, to own at least one book of, them, uh, of their, themselves as well? So we know that with uh, children, there are a range of range of uh, measures that that show that they are more likely to develop as readers into their adulthood. And one of those things is is having a book of your own. So mm-hmm. that you definitely having books at school, being able to go to a local library to get books too. But knowing that you've got books of your own at home really makes a difference to the way that children think about themselves as readers. So that's why we stress that point. But we also stress that it's really important for uh, parents and carers. To share time with their children reading together and that the reading experience is a really fun one that children can go out there and and choose a book for themselves that they're kind of experiencing um their reading lives on their own terms yeah yeah um what are some of the benefits um that, that the wider society can see when we raise a generation of children who actually love to to to, to read Oh, that's really interesting. I'm glad you asked me because we have been asking um, industry leaders and leaders from other charities as well mm-hmm. this year to tie in with the, the 25th birthday to say, what would the world look like if more children were growing up as readers? So on World Book Day's 50th birthday, yeah. what could society look like? And and every one of them came back to us with, with really powerful comments, how we could have a more empathetic society, children about the world and the people around them and understanding more about how empathy operates. Um, to be more literate, to, to ask more questions and to understand more about the world around us. So um, that was uh, the, the importance of books. And then we also also had another interview with, uh, with Emily regarding the importance of books. Hello, everyone. I'm Emily Drabble and I'm head of children's book promotions and prizes at Book Trust. Now, Book Trust is an amazing charity. Well, I love working for it. I've been here for five years. Um, It's the largest children's reading charity in the UK. And we do loads of great work getting children reading. Every year we reach 3.9 million children with books, resources and support, and all with the aim of getting all children reading regularly and wanting to read and loving reading and getting families reading. Um, For example, this year, I mean, from September onwards, like September 21 onwards, we've um, given 700,000 children a copy of um, a wonderful book called I'm a Tiger by Carl Newson and Ross Collins. And um, that is in our, um, yes, we've given that to four to five-year-old um, children as just as they're starting school. And we've also um, given, um, we also give children um, books when they are naught to um, 12 months old. It's all the idea to get children reading because... It's so important for children to read. It really transforms children's lives. And um, it's extra important for children who face disadvantage in life, um, including economic disadvantage, to read because it really transforms life, children's life chances. In fact, the biggest indicator of success, educational success, is actually reading for pleasure which actually supersedes family income so the best thing you could ever do for your baby 
and your child is to read with them. And that's what Book Trust is all about. And we um, carry on helping, supporting families to read um, through from right from the very beginning, actually, even um, even before they're born and as soon as they're born and all through their life and and until all through primary school and, and even into secondary school as well. So that's really what Book Trust is all about. That's brilliant. That's so interesting. And I think you've already answered it in a sense. My next question, which is that in a world that's constantly becoming more and more digitized, why is it so important for children to continue to read books? Because nowadays it seems you can find all the information you need on the internet, I guess. So why books in particular? Well, you can find all the information you need in books, but you can't find it in on the internet, but you can't find everything you need on the internet. I mean, you, real books, um, although we do encourage digital reading of books, for example, on a Kindle, um, but with the really little ones, there's nothing like reading real books. Just the very fact of um, opening a book. A very sad thing is that some children get to school where they have to learn to read, which is really hard. It's really hard to learn to read. It's really hard to learn to decode words. It's like a tough, like one of the toughest things that your, your brain will ever have to deal with, learning how to read. Well, now some kids start school and if they've not been brought up reading, they will, they possibly wouldn't even know which way around to hold a book or read a book, not to not have books um, as a familiar item um, is like a, is a real humongous disadvantage for children. Um, and to have books and to be reading books from, from being a baby, real books is a massive advantage. And I was thinking about this, thinking about followers of um, the Muslim faith and any of the major kind of world religions that have a book as an important part, you know, obviously you've got the Quran and there's the Bible. It's, and I think those children have a real advantage. They know that um, amazing things come from a book. Amazing knowledge is within a book and it's a massive advantage. Not all children have that because some children don't have books in their lives when they're little, not until they go to school. And then there's a real load of catching up to do. So it's things like, if you read to a little baby, even a baby before they can even before they can talk, and people f can find that odd if they haven't been, if they haven't been read to when they were a child that much, they can find it quite odd to think of reading to a baby that literally can't even talk. It's like why they can't read or talk? Why would I read to them? But those those things that you do for your child when you're reading to them. Um, I don't know, this, the repetition, the rhymes, sounding out, the cosiness, the cuddles, the turning of the pages, um, that is all hugely goes into children and to family life. And there's things that come from, comes from, come from reading a book, from putting yourself in another character's shoes. You don't get that from going on the internet, not in the same way. There's something very particularly that happens with books that's why books are just the best thing that's why I work at Book Trust. That's amazing and I think you brought up a lot of really compelling points and some of our listeners when this goes out live today would be interested even after World Book Day to get involved in some of the activities that the Book Trust runs so for the future how could some of our listeners possibly get involved with these things themselves? Well I think the first 
um, good step is to go onto the Book Trust website. I'll give you the URL. It's www.booktrust.org.uk. And there you will find a whole load of amazing inspirational resources. We have an, a wonderful tool called Book Finder, where you um, can put in certain um, keywords. Maybe you want a book about um, cats or um, nature and for particular ages, you'll type those things and you'll be given a whole list of books, great books to, to um, recommended books that you can either buy or get from your local library. Um, so that's really, really lovely. We also have a wonderful area called Home Time on the site, which is really for parents um, and children to use together. And it has lots of wonderful books read out by the authors and illustrators, things like um, how to draw lessons, things to kind of inspire you to get into books and reading and to find out more about books so that's really great and I've talked a little bit about um our time to read um program where we give books to um children as are just starting school that's the one that was I, I was saying about it was um, I'm a tiger by Carl Newsom and Ross Collins we and we also give books book start baby so every everyone um in the UK gets a book um when their when their baby's between naught and 12 months old. So that's really lovely. So probably many of the listeners will have already received some free books from Book Trust um, already. We also um, have a various programs in school. We have um, book bars for slightly older children in year seven and a school library pack where we give books to school libraries, secondary school libraries. We also have this wonderful program. I really would urge read, uh, listeners to the show to seek it out on our website. It's called Book Trust Represents. And if you just type that into Google, it will come up. And that is our um, program and project to look at inclusivity in children's books. Um, I don't know if listeners know, but um, children's books has been less inclusive than you would hope um but that has all started to really change we did some really interesting research which we published it's looked at children's books over the last 10 years but we published that research in 2019 so it was 10 years preceding that which looked at the numbers of books um, um written by authors and illustrators of color and the numbers have really increased in this country. And I feel really excited about books. I feel like everyone, every child now can see themselves reflected in a book and you just have to seek out those titles. And it used to be quite hard to seek them out, but now it's actually very easy to seek them out, which I think is very amazing. And um, I've got time to give some um, great book recommendations I think will be particularly exciting for Muslim families listening to this show I can maybe I can tell you some or I can maybe tweet some and tag you in or something like that yeah that would be wonderful it actually leads me really well into our last question which was today we want to talk about books that have been really impactful on society throughout time and I guess individuals as well so are there any books that you would recommend either um, that have made an impact on yourself recently or in childhood or books that you think could be impactful for our listeners of different backgrounds as well yes i was thinking about the books that have inspired me and i honestly think i am made of the books that i read when i was a child and i don't want any child to miss out on being made by the books that they read when they were a child because i feel that books are just so incredibly important if i think for myself a book which really um 
affected me was a book called When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit by the great author Judith Carr. She also wrote The Tiger That Came to Tea, which people might know, which is a very famous book. She won um, Book Trust's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. What an amazing author. And that book, I really remember reading it. It's about a girl and it's a, a based on her true, her own true story, Judith Carr's true story, that she fled um, Nazi Germany when she was a little girl, 10 years old. She eventually got to the UK, but she went via France and other countries. And um, it's an amazing book. It allowed me to put myself in the shoes of someone who's fleeing their home. And I think that sensibility has stayed with me it's such a powerful read and also really makes you think about um, other people's experience. That's the thing about books is that you can put yourself into the shoes of somebody else. So books are proved to make children more empathetic and also to improve their emotional health and ability to um, make friends and keep friends and all the things you need, all the skills you need in life to have a good life can be found in books. And I was thinking, Oh, there are some great books that have come out recently that do a similar thing for um, today's children. I'm going to recommend a book called Boy Everywhere by A.M. Dasu. That is a story of Sammy flee- fleeing Syria. Um, it's a very, so I, I was really thinking about these books at the moment with so many um, children, um, you know, people having to flee you know, the Ukraine. And I was, it was making me think about these books again. Actually, there's another amazing book, um, an an incredible author who is also a Muslim author, Anjali Q. Ralph, which I would advise listeners to definitely Google and look up her books. She wrote a very famous book. It won the Blue Peter Book Award, which Book Trust actually run, called The Boy at the Back of the Class, which does a similar thing, looking at the experience of what it's actually like to be um, someone who's fleed, that had to flee their country due to war. Um, and what their experience is like at school and how how it's important to be um, very humane and kind to children. And it's a very beautiful, amazing book. And um, there are so many books that have influenced me. And um, I think when I was a child and I, I find it very exciting to talk to children about the books that, um, that they love at the moment. And then I just think, I wonder what, what's the impact going to be in a few years time on those books? Cause they'll stay with you. They'll stay, you know, the books children read now, the books you read to your child when they're very little stay with them. And I talk to my children. I have two children, one's 16 and one's, one's 20. So they're quite grown up. I don't read to them anymore. Though I did read to my son until he was 15, which was pretty old. Um, but um, I talked to them about the books that we read when we, when we were very little. And I was thinking about um, an amazing book, which I think is hugely influential book. It's by an author called Shirley Hughes, who very sadly died um, just in the last couple of days. Now, I don't know if listeners know of her book, Dogger. Um, that is a book that I love, that I read to my children over and over again. And it's got kind of kindness at its root, really. It's about a boy who loses his little toy dogger and the amazing um, actions of his big sister. And I think um, listeners would love that book. And it's, it would be a nice book to read um, to celebrate the memory of Shirley Hughes. 
um, yes, who I just, who, as I said, has just very recently died. She was at the age of 94, so she lived a very long and beautifully fruitful life, producing many beautiful books. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Dalib Mann. And uh, we've been going through, or oh, this is that time of year, where we're looking at uh, what happened earlier on in the year. So uh, uh, our slot today is for March uh, 2022. So um, we already looked uh, earlier on in the first hour at uh, Women, uh, Women's International Day. Uh, also, we looked at books. It was International Books Day. So in terms of uh, International Women's Day, which was actually uh, celebrated on March the 8th, uh, that aspect uh, of uh, International Women's Day, uh, the UN General Assembly proclaimed this date as an official UN holiday back in 1977. So in that sense, the year... Uh, or this year, uh, 2022, is the 45th of, of official International Women's Day. Although the first one was held in 1911, 111 years ago. So this year, the theme was hashtag break the bias. So when we talk about break the bias, we're looking at, say, in, in terms of uh, women's rights, Yeah, you know, the, the right to do what they want to do, or what to wear what they want to wear. So um, the context here is, you know, the hijab, right? What is the hijab? Is it just a head covering? So hijab actually means veiling, and both men and women have been instructed to be modest in their character as well as their appearance. It's true that Muslim women across the world would will cover their heads and wear loose co- clothing according to their religious and cultural understanding of the terminology of hijab. Now, does this mean women in Islam are restricted or inferior, or that these two concepts, the concept of the hijab and the concept of being restricted and inferior, are one of the same thing? Of course it doesn't. His Holiness Mirza Mazra Ahmad, the head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, stated, first it is the men who are commanded to practice restraining their gaze. They should restrain their or restrain their eyes from gawking at anything prohibited, and they should not necessarily stare unnecessarily, I should say, stare at women. Now, where this concept originates from uh, in Islam, say to the believing men that they restrain their eyes and guard their private parts. That is purer for them. Surely Allah is well aware of what they do. Now this verse of the Holy Quran addresses the root issue of immorality or the lack of morality in society. The second part is aimed at women. Uh, and say to the believing men, uh, believing women that they restrain their eyes and guard their private parts and that they disclose not their natural and artificial beauty except that which is apparent thereof, and that they draw their head coverings over their bosoms, and that they disclose not their beauty save to their husbands or to their fathers or the fathers of their husbands or their sons or the sons of their husbands 
or their brothers, or the sons of their brothers, or the sons of their sisters, or their women, or what their right hands possess, or such of male attendants as to have no sexual appetite, or young children who have no knowledge of the hidden parts of women. And they strike not their feet so that what they hide of their adornments, ornaments may become known. And turn ye to Allah altogether, O believers, that you may succeed. Now a natural question that can arise is, why is the command more detailed for women? The second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, explained in his commentary regarding this verse, the outer garment is intended to be known, uh, is intended to make known the fact that while a Muslim woman goes about her business, she may be spared the mental anguish of being stared by by persons of questionable nature. Now, covering oneself when outside amongst men to whom a woman is unrelated to is different to covering inside one's home where there are such male relatives with whom marriage is permissible with. Now, the philosophy of the job is not the clothing itself, rather it is the modesty with which, with which men and women have been instructed to live by. This isn't to say that the hijab as a clothing can be disregarded, but the full benefit of it can only be attained when the hearts and minds of both men and women are pure. Now in the Holy Quran, it states in uh, chapter 7, verse 27, O children of Adam, we have indeed sent down to you raiment to cover your nakedness and to be a means of adornment. But the raiment of righteousness, that is the best. That is the commandments of Allah, that they remember. His Holiness, uh, the head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Mizra, uh, Mizra Mazra Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, explains, it should always be remembered that beauty lies in wearing the garment of righteousness, and the garment of righteousness is available to those men and women who make the utmost efforts to fulfill the pledges and trusts of their faith with all their abilities and capabilities. So I'm just going to play you a audio clip now from Mansura Minas regarding this subject. Very interesting. I'm going to just pick up on... Um on the uh, point that Imam Zakaria was mentioning, um, we, we see that in the history, uh, you know, the clothing um, of women have um, have been very different to what we are seeing now, and obviously not generalizing, but generally the trend in Western countries. Uh, looking back, you know, we go 30, 40, 50, 100 years back, uh, it was very different. Um, what is the significance of, of this, and how has that you know, how do you see this 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 rapid change over the over the years? Uh, as you just mentioned, that you know, hijab is not something new or covering of the head. It has actually, if we look, even men and women both, uh, you know, in different cultures. If we look back at the before the last century, that is is considered a sign of respect and dignity to cover the head. And even today, women in other religions like Christianity and 
Hinduism when they visit the places of worship. And even uh, for Hindus, even culturally, uh, it's not restricted to Islam only. So the main uh, idea behind covering is respect and dignity to protect. So it is not, uh, but unfortunately, the critics of Islam, they use it to malign Islam and they think that it is a sign of backwardness and repression, whereas, whereas it has been a customary garb for women worldwide to the end of the last century. Mm. And Islam... And it is a societal yeah. norm. Sorry. And it's a societal norm, and we see that even in the Christian church today, the nuns, if you see them, mm. and it's not uh, a nun and a Muslim woman wearing this full burqa, they don't look very different. So this distinction is something very new that the world is picking upon just to criticize Islam. Unfortunately, we live in that time. Yeah, no, you, you're right. Um, and, and when it comes to the Islamic teachings of, uh, of gender segregation as well, um, uh, for example, you know, in the mosque, we know whenever there is uh, namaz or any program, you know, men and women, they sit in different places. There is a segregation. Sometimes it's different, uh, you know, holes. Um, when we look at that uh, philosophy of the Islamic teachings of segregation, of having that space between men and women, you know, is, is that the way forward to tackle some of the issues in, in the recent times that where we have seen uh, issues of harassment, issues of uh, safety, um, issues of violence against women? Uh, very interesting question. So your question is twofold. So first, let me talk about gender segregation. I'm not going to give you a cliched answer. I'll talk based upon my personal experience. I have had the uh, blessing and the opportunity to serve as the president for the Women's Auxiliary in Miami chapter for the last four years. And I can tell you that while in that role, I've seen the significance of this uh, on a macro level. On a private level, when it comes to prayers, we understand women would not, I would not feel comfortable praying in the same hall as men. And, you know, that is the main thing. It, gender segregation is not just to bar women or just because they are treated less equal. It will just give them a safer space, a private space where they can, you know, be free to from the mundane expectations to behave in a certain way. So it's just for the comfort of women. And then from my personal experience, I can tell you that, uh, you know, the gender segregation is given, is uh, trusted upon Muslim women as a sign of repression. But I can tell you how it has empowered women in my community, in the MDM Muslim community. And we, as MDM Muslim community, uh, we have the Lajnai Malab, uh, you know, the Women's Auxiliary. So we are empowered. We do the exact same thing that we're not like, uh, our tasks are not delineated that since you're a woman you can't do this so every department that our uh, community has on a national level women also do the same things from moral training to to uh, uh, the teaching and then also the outreach efforts so we do everything our gender doesn't stop us from that in fact the separate auxiliary or the separate space it is for our own safe, uh, safe uh, it gives us that safe space and it allows us to participate and then it gives us the perfect opportunities for advancement. Whereas if we were in a bigger setting, then, you know, it gets 
harder. And this is not just for us. Even the West is vouching that, that you know, separate women uh, colleges exist. And we see that women feel more empowered in that. And it gives them that training ground. It gives them those opportunities. to allow, It allows them to hone their potential in that safe space. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that they're not uh, allowed to, you know, uh, perform in the public space alongside with men. Mm-hmm. And then the second part of the question, you talked about violence. So, and I was listening to your program earlier, and I'm very glad that you started out with the, we are talking about hijab and modesty, and the verse for hijab and modesty, as Imam Sahib just said, that it starts with the men lowering their gaze, Razabasar as we know it. So a lot of the problem of violence and, uh, you know, mistreatment of women would be, you know, it would be taken care of if it's that commandment, if that's the core commandment. And then the commandment for women, for women, the commandment to cover comes after that. Imagine the, all the problems that we are having in the world. And that holds for men, Muslim and non-Muslim men. All, all men, if they followed that guideline of Raza Basa, I can only imagine the world would be a much safer place. The issue of, you know, uh, gender discrimination and violence and harassment would be, you know, I can't say it will be eliminated, but it will really be uh, uh, come down to a very low level. Hmm. I mean, maybe you've already answered the, the question that I was about to ask. I mean, I know that in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, you know, we see that alongside men, women have their own organizations and they you know, they are working as well. They have their departments. You know, women have, with um, their departments, they're doing, you know, literally everything that men are doing, right? But then yeah. another thing is, in, in the Muslim to understand a bit more about hijab in the in the in, in the context of the Muslim states, you know, where currently women's rights are not you know, being given according to the Islamic teachings. And we know what the Islamic teachings is and what the Islam, what Islam teaches. But when the purpose of you know when the purpose of hijab is to liberate, why is it that, you know, the Muslim countries um, specifically no, they're not following the teachings of Islam. Yeah. Uh, as uh, you know, you just mentioned that the guidelines are there. And, you know, I'm a follower of Islam, and I, we don't judge the faith based upon how people choose to practice it. They have their own misunderstandings and their own, uh, you know, misconstrued ideals, and they can interpret it. But... The Islam that we know and that the Indian, what the Islam, that the true Islam that the Indian Muslim community preaches, we believe that Islam provides that gold standard for all realms of life. It, we're just talking about women issues, but even in the social, economic, and uh, the spiritual realm, we believe that Islam is the final, the most complete, and the perfect religion. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, some Muslims are still you know, struggling to grapple with those great ideals. And Islam is not just a religion, it is a way of life. It is very Mm. close to nature. So, but the problem is that, you know, some people, some governments or some 
uh, sectors of the society, they use those uh, teach, they misconstrue those ideals, and you know we know that this has been happening, and this is not unique to Islam. Other faiths also have that issue, but mm. uh, these uh, 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 Muslim faiths, uh, and you know this is so for us. We, you know, are uh, I mean those who are practicing Islam and those who are vouching for, like we are discussing about gender equality and women's rights. So in fact, it. It's very crystal clear for us that, you know, it's, there's no, uh, in fact, it's not just we're talking about liberation of Muslim women. We're talking about all women, their, uh, you know, salvation lies in the golden ideals that Islam has to offer. And Islam mm. gives spiritual equality, economic equality, political. So we know, and, you know, uh, till very late, the, earlier this century, women were not allowed to vote. Women mm. couldn't uh, inherit property. Women were barred from, uh, you know, doing so much in life. But Islam gave these rights 1,400 years ago. So the mm. West actually, or the critics of Islam who say that, they have a lot of catching up to do. In fact, just they feel that, you know, just hijab is just one component. They feel that just uh, shunning uh, and, uh, you know, wearing less clothes is going to liberate women. No, it's not going to. It doesn't happen like that. There's a lot more to it. And just, mm. you know, getting fixated on this ideal that, you know, and then by banning the hijab and, you know, lots of Western uh, European countries like France have banned and they have taken extreme measures to find women who wear the hijab or the burqa. So they think it's regressive and actually they are, they don't understand the spirit behind it. And if it was so true, then why would women still be struggling for equal pay? Why would women, why would we have, uh, you know, women struggling to have the right to vote? Why would women earlier this century, they were not, they were barred from entering uh, colleges like these higher institutions of learning, including mm -hmm. Columbia University. My daughter mm -hmm. goes to Barnard College, which is an offshoot of Columbia University. And that college, that women's college was formed because Columbia University wouldn't allow women in their, uh, in their campus. So the women, mm -hmm. so somebody with this uh, emancipation, they decided that women should have a separate college. So mm -hmm. how can the Western countries really put this blame on Islam? And we know that from the history of the world, the first institution of learning, not just for women, but the first degree awarding institution was founded by a Muslim woman, Fatma al-Firi in Morocco. So this yeah. is, so Islam gives that, uh, you know, those ideals, it's already there. So we are not mm. going to judge, they can, they're very wrong to judge Islam based upon what certain Muslim countries choose to do. We are going to follow the teachings of our Holy Prophet and the Quran and then that is where our salvation lies, and that's where the salvation for the whole world lies, actually. Mm -hmm. Very well said, very well said. Now, you spoke about the Lajna Imaila, uh, the, uh, the women's auxiliary organization uh, within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, which began in 1922. So how has this enabled women to you know, flourish? Could you tell us some, something more about this, Dave? Yes. So, uh, 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 coincidentally, we are living in 2022, and uh, we are fortunate we will be seeing the centenary of this organization, 
which is mm-hmm. uh, like the hallmark of women emancipation. And it is mm-hmm. a unique organization in the history. Like we have been going strong for 100 years, starting from uh, India and now it's spread all over the world, more than 200 countries, wherever the community and the Muslim community is, you'll find the sister at the women's auxiliary, Lejnaya Mayala. So the second Halifa, Hazrat Mirza Bishyuddin Mahmoud, he founded this uh, organization to foster the independence and empowerment of women. And uh, uh, actually he formed this organization based upon the advice of his wife, who insisted that you know the, the this organization was needed for the empowerment of women, and we see this today. And another thing that I would like to highlight is that in our India uh, Muslim community we have auxiliaries, but Lajna Imaila was the first auxiliary to be formed, even before the men's, the Ansarul and the Khudam. Why? Because our second Halifa, who is the promised reformer. Uh, who was the promised son of the promised Messiah, the reformer of the age, he understood the value of women and what they can bring and how can they can be the agents of change. So he established this organization to empower women, and we see how it has grown and flourished and thrived. And we see that, and I'm, uh, a, I can personally testify to see, we live in a, ours is a small community here in Miami, but we as women, are not barred from, the, we are equal participants, we are agents of change, we do humanitarian services, we do the outreach. We have traveled to the U.S. Capitol to raise awareness about the rights of women and other issues. So our empowerment and our, uh, you know, encouragement lies through, uh, in Islam and, you know, a lot of our non-Muslim friends, and even Muslim friends, they're amazed at all the work that we are doing as a women auxiliary right here in one of the cities in the United States. And, you know, this is this model is replicated all over the world. But I'm giving my personal example so that I've seen it and I've lived it, and I hope, uh, you know, that the world can understand that women, there's no competition. What I see that uh, when it comes to gender equality, uh, the liberals, the Western women, they have this wrong notion of complete equality. We don't have to fight with men to get our rights. We already have our own strengths, and we need to embrace, embrace those strengths to hone our potential and to realize, and that is the only way you know, we can bring the best to the world. And we, see, and we as Muslim women get our uh, freedoms and our, we are guaranteed those through our faith and through the example of a holy prophet who empowered us. And, he, and we have the examples in Islamic history through the wives of Umar al-Mu'mineen, Hazrat Hadija, who was a strong entrepreneur. His wife, Hazrat Aisha, was a scholar of Islam. So we all know about those things. So we need to bring those things and we need to empower our Muslim girls and Muslim youth and also the world and show them that how Islam can be the solution to the problems that the world faces today. Not just gender, for women, because right now I understand that we're talking about gender equality. Today's International Women's Day, but in other realms too. And I'm really thankful to Voice of Islam for you know doing these shows, and this means a lot, and it is creating a lot of awareness and, uh, you know, these discussions are very important. So that was a very powerful uh, segment regarding uh, female uh, or 
gender equality and uh, hijab, the supreme rights of women uh, with Mansura Minas. And I suppose, you know, yeah, I've spoken uh, to numerous uh, Muslim women uh, on the show or on this issue uh, regarding hijab. I mean, the hijab is a supreme right which they enjoy. Liber- Islam liberated women with its advent in the seventeenth, oh, sorry, seventh century, and our discussion uh, during these shows uh, has highlighted how the hijab enables, actually, enables women to serve their communities without fearing judgment based on the material uh, aspect of their looks. Uh, so, you know, rather than being respected for their contributions. Now, this goes alongside men restraining their eyes. And so women's rights have truly you know, been established in Islam, as uh, Mansura Minas uh, so eloquently stated uh, or has put uh, forward in her interview uh, with Drive Time Show. But to talk more about this, uh, uh, you know, hijab, this, a supreme right, uh, here's another audio clip with Kutsia Ward. Very interesting. I mean, you as somebody who converted to Islam, um, you know, you adopted the hijab. Uh, how was your, your experience throughout this? Uh, well, when I became a Muslim and I understood that Muslim women cover their heads, it was a, quest- a process I went through. It isn't that one day I didn't wear it and the next where I next time I was covered completely I um, slowly adjusted to it so in the beginning when I was a young woman I used to wear a headscarf I mean it isn't in the fashion now but when I was young which is a while ago quite often women wore head squares tied under their chin and you sometimes you see the queen wearing one when she rides the horse that was the fashion when I was young so I could easily cover my head using that style and then later on as I was more exposed to different cultures different customs I could look at the styles that other women were wearing and choose the ones I wanted so sometimes I wore a I think Pakistanis call them dupattas a a long cloth that you wrap around your head yeah so I did that and then I've I've also worn a snood like something like a snood which is a tube you put over your head and mm-hmm. um, my grandchildren used to call me grand, grandma wimple <laughs> i never did wear a wimple but they that was the nearest they could get to it but uh i mean obviously nuns cover their head and there's lots of different styles around the world yeah and i just picked up the ones i was comfortable with and now i like to wear uh, something like a snood, like the Syrian women or the uh, women of the Middle East wear, because mm-hmm. it's so easy and I don't have to keep flipping and flapping it around. Mm. Very interesting. And, and uh, you mentioned your reaction of your grandparents. Other people in your family, were, were, they, were there questions, um, perhaps from your friends, that, you know, why have you suddenly started wearing this? Uh, is it comfortable? Uh, is it not too hot? <laughs> All of these questions, maybe. What? Yes, they have said that at different times. Different family and friends have said that. And But, you know, in, in British society, usually people are left to go their own way. There might be a little comment here or there. Um, the only one who strongly expressed an opinion was my mother-in-law, who, who did feel uncomfortable 
when I, she was walking with us in town and myself and my daughter were wearing a scarf. But um, that was her own personal prejudice. Mm-hmm. A fear of other people, I think she had. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. Um, there there are numbers of, uh, you know, uh, a number of questions regarding his job, such as whether women have been, uh, have to be covered at home, in front of family, at night. Um are these sort of questions that you had as well and did you get those questions clarified or, or was it something that you you learned as you started wearing the hijab well i think it's quite clear in the quran that uh, in the house and among the family members you don't have to cover in the same way as you do when you go outside and out of doors so i think it, it is quite clear and i um I took the um, attitude that within my house, I was protected by the home and the house. And it was when I went outside that I wanted to show that I was a Muslim woman, that I wanted to be treated with respect. I wanted people to recognize that I was a Muslim woman, which is one of the purposes of wearing the hijab. Uh, People don't often talk about that, but it is so that people know you're a Muslim. And hopefully treat you with respect and and uh, recognize that you don't want to be treated, um, you know, flirtatiously or, or too familiarly. You want to remain and retain some sort of dignity that uh, the hijab would signify. I hope. Mm. Did you did you see a, a difference um, of of uh, people's behaviors or attitudes towards you? when you started wearing the uh, head covering and before, in comparison to before? Um, I think later on I saw it. I probably didn't notice it so much when I was younger, but uh, later on I've noticed it. And I think that, to me, that's a good difference because that's what I want. I Mm. don't want people to be too familiar with me. I want them to sort of have a little bit of, um, what can I say, you know, not, not not to sort of be inviting me around, but there's one other thing about the hijab that I've learned is that it also affects the way I behave. Mm, so that if I'm wearing the hijab, it reminds me or 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 helps me to retain my modesty and a little bit of deference towards other people. Mm, I think so that's that, you know, yeah. I think that's a great point, actually, because we haven't really talked about that. That, yeah, of course, it does, you know, send a message out. But of course, it's for 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 primarily it's 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 for you, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's your spiritual relationship with God Almighty and, the, you know, the the connection. And, and it reminds you that, you know, this, this you're doing this for God Almighty, not for other people. Yeah. Well, this is what the Quran says. I mean, it says in different parts of the Quran, it says that you know, that you do these things to please Allah, that you may prosper. Mm. And in another part, it says that you may purify yourselves. So I think, you know, these are the reasons why we do it. It isn't it isn't just um, belonging to one culture or belonging to Asian culture and not British culture. It's part of Islam, and it's there for the benefit of all people and, and Muslims recognize and accept that so that they're happy to do these things. Brilliant. I think uh, my co-presenter, Imam Zakaria, also had a question for you. Um, when you look at hijab, for example, um, you see that um, you know, there's a different 
uh, a notable difference in the way Muslim women around the world um, cover themselves um, and how Muslim men do, uh, resulting in you know, some negative interpretations of this. Um, how can we clear the misconceptions that the hijab is forced or um, you know, restrictive? Well, I think that's quite a wise question, isn't it? I mean, if you look around the world at different cultures, you find that Muslim men very often wear quite substantial head coverings and, and wraps around their faces and their necks, you know, quite like Muslim women. And mm-hmm. um, they're not forced to do it, and neither are women. And it's only mm-hmm. education that can help people to understand that, which is a, another reason why I'm quite happy to wear the hijab out in society in this country because I can explain if ever anyone has the courage to raise the point or speak to me about it or if I get the opportunity to say something about it I can say that it's a choice I've made and nobody's compelling me to do it mm. and and that's mm-hmm. a matter of educating people yeah I mean a personal experience of in a woman themselves is a no. And there are women who say that, look, this is my personal, you know, um, personal choice, and this is not something which is forced on me. Um, now, uh, relating to the society, the British society, um, hijab, is it compatible with the British society? Well, I think I'd have to think about what you mean by compatible, but it certainly doesn't stop you doing anything. I mean, I'm mm. an English-born. I've worked during my life. and Now I'm retired. I do quite a lot of different kinds of voluntary work going out into the society. Mm. And I, I always wear my hijab when I'm out doing things. So it hasn't restricted me in any way at all. And mm. the things that I want to do, I'm quite capable of doing wearing the hijab. So there we had uh, interview or uh, audios with Mansura Minas and Kutsi Award, and just you know, just saying really how <coughs> excuse me, Islam has granted uh, equal universal rights between men and women. Uh, also in uh, March, we celebrated uh, you know our differences, neurodiversity. Now the week. Uh, March the 21st to 27th was Neurodiversity Celebration Week. And it's a worldwide initiative that challenges stereotypes and misconceptions about neurological differences. It aims to transform how neurodivergent individuals are perceived and supported by providing schools, universities and organisations with the opportunity to recognise the many talents and advantages of being neurodivergent while creating more inclusive and equitable cultures that celebrate differences and empower every individual. Now, Neurodiversity Celebration Week uh, was aimed to encourage a shift in focus away from your perceived weaknesses towards the many strengths and positive aspects that being neurodivergent brings. Uh, In the Holy Quran, Allah states, O ye who believe, let not one people deride another people who may be better than they, nor let women deride other women who may be better than they, or <coughs> and defame dot your own people, nor call one another by nicknames. Bad indeed is evil reputation after the profession of belief, 
and those who repent are not wrongdoers. And that was chapter 49, verse 12. Now, this verse shows that Islam forbids uh, expressly Muslims from mocking those who are different or discriminating against them. This verse also shows the importance of serving mankind and helping and showing kindness to those who are vulnerable. And uh, during the, the month of March, we spoke to Helen Castle regarding uh, neurodiversity. Helen, can you share us, with us uh, what Reba is doing as an organization on neurodiversity? Yes, um, perhaps I ought to just say what Reba is for your audience. Absolutely, um, yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Reba is the Royal Institute of British Architects and it's a professional membership body uh, representing architects and also advancing the culture of architecture and design of good buildings. So um, at Reba, we're, we're recognising that neurodivergence is an asset to be welcomed and in architecture particularly skills such as thinking differently, problem solving and connection making are often found in neurodivergent individuals. Um, probably best known, uh, some of you in your audience might know or heard of the architect Richard Rogers, for instance, mm -hmm. and he was well known as a dyslexic. And recently when he died, all over social media, um, there was his old school report from university mm. and it was saying it was completely damning saying he didn't have the intellectual apparatus to be an architect and he went on to be obviously a brilliant architect designed the Pompidou Centre in Paris the Lloyds building in London and there was just a such joy at, at this um, old damning report and it just shows that some that individuals who've perhaps been challenged in the past have gone on and had brilliant careers in areas such as architecture so at Reba we really recognize that those are people who are skilled and highly talented um, we also recognize that neuro neurodivergent individuals needs must be accounted for and adaptations made to ensure that their working environment is comfortable and inclusive, ensuring that everyone is supported to reach their full potential. Um, we have a responsibility to serve as a role model for the profession, ensuring that we're creating better and more inclusive ways of working. And in 2021, we set up the Enable Community Group. Now that's a group of staff with lived experience of disability including neurodiversity. This is a safe space for group members to highlight the challenges they face, sharing their insight and feedback to create meaningful change in the organization and across architecture. And I chair that group. Um, and we had a really exciting, our first meeting, it was like lid, lifting the lid off the whole organization and seeing it through totally different eyes and finding out people, Quite often people had invisible disabilities mm. and you just didn't know about them. They were doing these amazing jobs already and it was incredibly empowering and exciting. Absolutely. Um, and very, very, very important um, to, to help and uh, encourage such individuals and uh, who, who obviously, as you said from the examples, can become a very essential parts of our society. Um, can you tell us about... Um, 
inclusive design, why do architects have uh, architects have a particularly important role in designing inclusively? I think things have grow- have happened really fast. So the understanding of neuroscience and neurodiversity has grown very rapidly, and it's apparent that everybody now is affected by sensory elements in the built environment. So our our built environment can create sensory overload, affecting our perception, processing, movement and response with potentially negative impacts on health, focus, productivity and behaviour. These are all aspects that could be anticipated and improved by architects through early informed design considerations. So they kind of reduce stress and induct and and the anxiety um, through making the right decisions in design and considerations. And actually, it's not just neurodivergent individuals that it helps. It helps the built environment for absolutely everybody. But public bodies and private clients have become more focused on this, ensuring their properties are inclusive for all users and people. So, I mean, a good example of this, for instance, is um, the BBC when they built their new um, centre in Cardiff. This was something that they did, that they looked at it and they designed for neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. But you also got in the States, um, Microsoft, for instance, they're recruiting neurodiverse individuals. So bigger um, commercial and public bodies are really getting onto this now. Right, right. And obviously, again, um, very, very important that everyone um, understands this, this, this issue and they try to help out as, mu- as much as they can. Um, there is uh, inequality at workplaces with the disabled and neurodiverse staff members. Can you tell us how Reba supports uh, neurodiversity there? Well, as I mentioned, in 2021, we set up the Enabled Community Group. And it's just for staff with lived experience and disability and neurodiversity. So it's a safe space for group members to talk together, to share experience and highlight the challenges they face. And by doing this also, we feed back to HR and to facilities and other areas that affect the staff experience a reaper as well right right and since you obviously did mention the um enable community what would you like to recommend to other workplaces to create a safe space for neurodiverse members i think having that that group which you know we have chatham house rules you're not you're not meant to um share who the members are or their disabilities without their permission for instance I think that's really powerful but it's also started really open conversations Um, it's meant that every time that on our internal comms for instance a staff member they talk about their disability um, it it makes them feel that they might be able to talk to another colleague about it or their manager Mm -hmm. I mean I know for instance that I I felt very guarded about talking about my own issues with, as a senior member of staff, you know, you felt like you might not get a promotion, for instance, if that was disclosed. But once you have those open conversations, 
you realise that it's not going to go against you. Absolutely. So that was a conversation with Helen Castle regarding neurodiversity. So uh, I'm going to conclude with our final audio of the day with Atia Kwacha regarding also neurodiversity. And with that, uh, I'll end the show, Monday's edition of The Drive Time Show, wishing all our listeners a safe and happy festive season. Um, so you work as a as an educational consultant specializing in uh, in sense support and leading the uh, sense provision for Lajnamala UK. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do? Um, yes, I can. Um, I, you give me a lovely introduction. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, as you've already explained, I've uh, qualified and worked in education for uh, many, a couple of decades now, over nearly three decades. Um, and that was after a period of uh, studying for a doctorate, actually, in a completely unrelated area, which was environmental sustainability. And at the heart, I was always thought myself as a human geographer. But I found myself in education, firstly in primary, and then most recently in secondary. But what brought me to secondary was being inclined to the most disadvantaged, uh, the vulnerable and the special needs within our school environment. And the last 10 years has led me to work in leadership as an inclusion leader, a SENCO, which is a special educational needs coordinator mm-hmm. that all schools must have, um, and assistant head to um, lead inclusion. But now I currently work in a special needs school where we focus all on all of the educational health care plan children, because obviously it's a special school, of children who have autism, ADHD or other moderate learning difficulties, which could I could explain further. Um, the work that I started um, in terms of this new project, uh, it actually actually began in 2018 when there was a call for racial awareness, uh, training and education of all Lesna members, which are the ladies auxiliary organisation called Lesna Maila. Mm-hmm. After the community members themselves voted for a directive called Ashura, and the directive was basically had three main objectives. The first one was to lead training and um, seminars and lectures, as well as workshops to improve the knowledge, um, the identification and strategies to support members who have special educational needs. But it, secondly, it was also to lead the educational, the special needs and um, educational policy to ensure that special educational needs was included in all our national events as well as far as possible. And all reasonable adjustments were made to our um, competitions, our national seminars, Sassalana, which happens every year. And alhamdulillah, we have managed to make good ground in that in the last three years. And the third objective was to set up parental support, which is co-mentoring and encouraging participation of female members who may have young children or young adults, or they may be special educational needs themselves, to develop their social, their educational and their spiritual development as members in the community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Absolutely. And um, it is really amazing um, to, to, to find out that we are um, thinking about such um, aspects of of, of uh, our society and trying to uh, include um, those uh, such individuals as much as we can. Um, so, autism manifests itself in different ways and uh, symptoms vary greatly. Does it become difficult as a teacher to support autistic children? I would say nowadays probably not. If you were looking at my early career, you know, with twenty five odd years ago. 
special educational needs was like a half an hour, an hour, maybe if we're lucky, a half a day's training uh, is part of our four-year teaching degree. But now special educational needs is um, much more prominent as part of teacher training. So I would say the newer teachers coming through in the last five to ten years will have much more awareness of the, the divergence and the neurodivergence within our communities. I think the fact that schools have to have legally an educational representative as a special educational needs coordinator means that it becomes a legal responsibility upon all schools to educate their staff. And there are key indicators that you can look for in the diagnosis and assessment and support strategies for ASD, which is the autistic spectrum. Um, and these, um, we haven't, time doesn't permit me to go through all of the indicators, but there are four main areas where you might get indication that pupils may be on the ASD spectrum. And in fact, we're all, all human beings are on the spectrum at some point, you know, mm -hmm. within, within the diverse range. Mm -hmm. But the, the main things that manifest themselves is that there may be some communication and speech difficulties, and there may be some social interaction difficulties. There may be some cognitive and learning difficulties in mixed into that. But the other thing that is prominent within ASD is sensory processing, uh, which may include things like sleep disorder or digestive system problems because of the anxiety that ASD creates within a human being and, you know, different uh, stages. Uh, and there is a whole spectrum of uh, disorders related to that in terms of sensory. Mm -hmm. And the final area is their mental health. If they may be highly anxious children, they may have they may manifest themselves as behaviour problems within the classroom. Um, they may not be coping because of sensory overload, or it could be as simple as not being aware that they um, can't sit too close, or do not like being touched, or they don't like certain smells that can trigger what looks like a meltdown. And in early education, in the early years. It's often you, you kind of let children settle into the school system before you start making referrals for assessment. But those are the kind of key areas, the four main areas that we would look at, which is the communication, the cognition, the sensory processing difficulties, and also the mental health and anxiety. And there is just like a human DNA in, in, in terms of our own individual DNA, every autistic child is completely different to the next. So mm -hmm. you can't categorise and box them into being one type or another type because each individual may have a complete different mix of all of these different issues or they may only have one or two aspects of these um, difficulties that they exhibit within the classroom in, in, or in their home life. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. most certainly. Um, and um, according to a research, 34% um, of children on the ASD say the worst thing about school is being picked on. Um, how do you think uh, can the schools and teachers prevent this? I think it's, um, it's a question that ought to be addressed as a wider community um, issue. Children don't come to school learning how to be unkind. They don't come to school having learnt that, you know, if somebody is different, um, you know, we must treat them differently. These things start from um, the home, from our parenting of our children from a very young age. And I think that education of children starts from the moment that they're born in terms of how do, how do we as adults around them um, present ourselves when we see difference? 
Uh, if some of those things like racial difference, language difference, cultural differences, are we accepting? Are we open? Are we seeing them as human, you know, with humanity rather than judgmental or speaking to people or avoiding people just because they're different? So um, teachers often get a lot of responsibilities upon our shoulders to kind of, of prevent things like bullying. But it's a societal and it's a cultural um, change that's required. And it, it can only come from society itself. And schools are a reflection of what's going on in the outside world. So schools, I think, have got a lot of role to play because we're spending a lot of time with children. But we only spend 32 or 33 percent of children's time spent in school. The rest of their time is education and learning of how to respond to people with different needs comes from their external environment and how they are, um, you know, in terms of their development, how they're grown, how they're nurtured in the home, how they're nurtured in social settings. So schools definitely have a role to play. We do have policies in place. We have things like celebrating, um, you know, neurodiversity, we have disability days, we have ensuring in many schools that, that children are included by being taught alongside their peers and not treated to be, I mean, there was a time when children with SDN were stuck with an LSA, taught completely separately, and they never felt that they were part of the class. Those days hopefully have gone. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying in every class setting that's gone, but we are in a different society now where inclusion, is, uh, by teachers is seen that it's our responsibility as teachers to ensure that every child has the opportunity. Now that doesn't mean giving everyone the level platform to start on, it means providing the rest necessary adjustments to ensure a child who has hearing difficulties has the resources and the tools to be able to access learning that is required. A child with visual impairment has what they need to enable them to do the same type of learning but maybe in a different way using different tools. A child with autism has the environment created so they don't get the sensory overload, they don't get stimulated by things that are going to trigger anxiety, so that they can access the same lesson at the same, you know, from a different approach. So our teaching has had to become diverse too. We can't take the same material or provide everybody with the same resources like, you know, we may have done in the past. We have to modify the materials, the resources and the tools according to the needs of the children. And the best teachers are those who personalise the learning towards what each individual child needs. And I would say that that includes our attitude towards people who are different. Uh, And we have to, as teachers, be as accepting and open to discussing difficult and challenging topics like our differences, but in a way where children feel they are comfortable to be able to talk about it. And they must raise and we have zero tolerance to anybody being treated differently just because of a disability. Absolutely. And I mean, um, you have partly answered my last question, but uh, if you could um, uh, give us a little more information that what can people do to be more uh, accommodating to people with autism? And how can we teach children to be more accepting and understanding in this regard? I mean, I, I, I as I've said already, I think that a lot of it is to do with um, our not just accepting people that are individually different. We've got within our own community, the MDM Muslim Association, we've got over 84 uh, families who are now linked to WhatsApp groups, and each individual case has a completely different child or a young adult 
who have complete diverse needs. We can't put all special needs into one box either. And that's mm-hmm. really important for us to respect the fact that these are all human beings and every human being has the right to a voice. They have a right to feel accepted and included within communities, in schools, in the workplace. And society as a whole has a responsibility to ensure all of its citizens have um, a good health care, have good education, achieve the best that they can. And I, this country has gone a long way in which ensuring the education of children and adults with um, special educational needs uh, have their needs met. But we we have it on paper. I think we've got a further journey to make in terms of ensuring that we implement those as much as possible. And I would like to bring attention to the fact that a lot of SEN families are being underserviced by government put to budget, by local authorities curtailing things like transport and accessibility for special educational needs children. And there's a huge um, noise of energy going on around the fact that actually SEN children, SEN young people are being highly underserviced in this country because now we've set the bar high as to what we should be providing for them. I think we're falling quite short from actually meeting their needs and they are being disadvantaged. And they're the most vulnerable in our society. So in terms of making sure that they leave school with with enough to be able to survive as adults, that they've got access to services and healthcare in the community when they become young adults, all of these things require policymakers, uh, parents, the people who vote, ensure that they vote for people who are in have in mind the fact that there are vulnerable people in society who have to have their needs met. And, you know, it's not something that we just should accommodate with autistic people if all people with, with special educational needs are being underserved at the moment.